One of the great feelings in life is when you've, uh, you're learning to ride a bike and you get to the top of a hill and you've got confidence to just relax and coast. Uh, stop pedalling, stop working, just enjoy the ride coasting down the hill. Today at the beginning of a new year, it's a good time to pause and reflect If you're a Christian, I want you to reflect on your life as a Christian. Are you coasting in the Christian life? If you're not a Christian, I want you to think about where you're going. What's the goal, the direction of your life? I reckon for many Christians, we're coasting in the Christian life. We understand we're saved by grace, not works. And we've just gone deep into Galatians as a church. We know that circumcision, that the law doesn't save. We're not saved by anything we do. Jesus saves. Being united to Christ by faith, safe. Saves. So is the good news, trust in Jesus, say the sinner's prayer, take your feet off the pedals and it's time to coast. The Bible says grace is opposed to works. Is it also true that grace is opposed to effort? I reckon for many Christians we think, well, I'm not doing any of the big sins. I'm not cheating on my spouse, tick. I'm not abusing substances, tick. I'm not controlled by gambling, tick. And our vision for the Christian life is, well, make it to church if there's nothing else on and don't do anything really bad. Is this the Bible's vision of the Christian life? Today we're kicking off our summer series in 2 Peter. 2 Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter. You see that in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And if you jump down to verse 12, he tells us why he's writing this letter. He's writing this letter because he's getting on. He knows his time is short. These are his final words. And his final words are going to be a reminder to remind Christians of the truth they know, especially the truth that Jesus will come again. So he's writing to remind believers of this truth and to encourage Christians to live in the light of this truth, to live wholeheartedly for Jesus now because we know what God's future is. So have a look from verse 12. So 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory, as long as I live in the body of, in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So Paul's writing this letter so believers will remember, will always know the true gospel. Or to put it another way, have a look back at verse 2. Peter wants believers to know, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Uh, This letter is written so we'll know God, we'll know God our Father in Jesus our Lord. And we'll have grace and peace in abundance, grace growing and multiplying, grace and peace through knowing God. Uh, So that's who wrote this letter, the Apostle Peter, and why he wrote it. 
Who did he write it to? Galatians. We just finished Galatians. It's called Galatians because it was written to the churches of Galatia. But this letter to Peter doesn't say precisely who it was written to. So Peter most likely had this letter written and then distributed to all sorts of churches he'd spent time with during his life. He also expected this letter to be read widely by Christians everywhere and everywhere, even after his death, he wrote it to people like us. And you can see this in verse 1. He says this letter is written to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. So if you're a believer in Jesus, Jesus who is our God and Saviour, if you've received faith in Christ, this letter is written for you. This letter is Peter's final words. And he wants those who've been given faith in Jesus, he wants Christians to remember. He's writing so believers will abound, will grow in grace and peace. Now one of the questions of this passage is, how do we abound in grace and peace? Verse 2 is a prayer. He's asking God to do this in those who read this letter, but how does it happen? How does God answer this prayer? Growing in grace and peace is something that is grounded in the gospel of grace. Its, its foundation is what Jesus has done and what Jesus continues to do as the gospel is proclaimed by the apostles to the world, and then from the apostles, the people who hear that, they pass it on, and they pass it on, they pass it on. Now this flow of the Gospels from the apostles to the next generation of believers and the next and the next and the next, it's often overlooked in what Peter writes. Now what I'm about to say, almost no commentary notices these words. Most commentaries and sermons on 2 Peter completely gloss over some little words in verses 3 and 4. And so maybe I'm seeing something that's not there, but I think it is. So let's look closely at what Peter says. If you have a look at verses 3 and 4, it switches from talking about us to talking about you. Why does it move from describing what God's done for us and then talking about what is meant for you? Well, in the context, we've already seen in verse 1, Peter's writing to those who have received a faith as precious as ours. The us in verse 1, the ours in verse 1, is most likely talking about the apostles, those who, like Peter, were eyewitnesses and first to believe. And he's writing to those who have trusted in what the apostles proclaimed. And the point of verse 1 is that all Christians, whether you saw Jesus or not, our faith is just as real and just as precious as the apostles. Even though we haven't seen Jesus with our own eyes, the faith of each and every Christian is just as precious as the apostles. And then we get down to verse 3. It says, us, us apostles, have been given all things for life and godliness. Us apostles have been called to Christ's glory and excellence. Us apostles have been given great and precious promises. And why has Christ given these things to Peter and the, the rest of the apostles? So they would proclaim Jesus, proclaim the gospel so people like you and me, people who've never seen Jesus, would trust in Jesus and receive all the blessings that come from knowing him. 
be forgiven and changed to be like Jesus. So read these verses carefully with me. Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now maybe I'm wrong. As I've said before, almost no commentary even notices these words. Almost everyone thinks when Peter says us, he means every believer. And when he says you in verse 4, he also means us all. He just says you instead of us because maybe he's bad at grammar or something. But I don't know. I think he actually means what he says. We're being reminded of Peter and the apostles and their significant role in God's plans, which is the point he then goes on to make in verses 16 through to 18, which we'll look at next week. This letter is written as as the first generation of believers are dying. And Peter wants to make sure that we know that the faith will continue. And it has. We are now in the 200th and 23rd year of our Lord. Now, I don't think Peter's saying the apostles are better Christians. He's not saying Jesus has given the apostles everything for living a godly life, but then, hey, you believers that came next after us, well, you're on your own. No. Verse 1 says, All believers have received a faith as precious as the apostles. Through the preaching of the apostles, which we've got in the Bible, we receive the same grace from Christ. Through Christ, we escape the corruption of the world. And we get to participate in the divine nature. We escape the corruption of the world and we participate in the divine nature. Uh, these are two ways of talking about how Jesus changes lives. Even of those who've never met him personally with our eyeballs, but who have met him through faith and by the Spirit. And we need to be changed because we live in a world that is corrupt, broken and fallen because of sin. Without Jesus, without the work of God's spirit, we are controlled by our desires, our evil, selfish, sinful desires. This is one of those things we're really good at spotting in other people. We don't take too much convincing that there are plenty of people out there with evil desires. Uh, the other week, when we were out looking at Christmas lights at one of the, the really popular houses in town, there was a crowd on the footpath, lots and lots of cars on what is normally a quiet street. And someone came down that road and they got impatient and road ragey in their car. They were beeping and carrying on. And you could see everyone in the crowd just shaking their head at this fool. How could someone be so stupid and selfish? We're really good at seeing selfish in others. We're not so good at seeing it in ourselves. When I'm impatient, when I get angry with my family or with people we know around the place, it's not that I'm selfish. I'm, 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 actually maybe I am. But verse four says, God's promises and his power frees us from this corruption as by faith we participate in the divine nature. Now, this doesn't mean becoming a God. 
Now, participating in the divine nature doesn't mean becoming an actual God. Uh, that's what Mormons believe, that certain men, if they're good enough, when they die, become gods. And I don't know if, if their belief comes from misunderstanding this verse or something extra they wrote in the Book of Mormon. Uh, some New Age spirituality talks about discovering the God within, that we have a divine nature we need to discover. That is not what Peter means. Participating in the divine nature isn't becoming a god, it's becoming godly. Having our hearts and minds changed to be like Jesus. Now this is no small thing, it's not like, oh man, it'd be so good if I could become a god. No, becoming like God, becoming like Jesus, these verses say that's actually possible. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because of the pouring out of the Spirit, it is possible for believers to grow in the likeness of Jesus, to be freed from the corruption of the world, and for this to make an actual real difference in our lives. The vision of the Christian life, it's not coasting downhill. It's not try to make it to church every so often and try not to do anything really bad. Have a look at verse 5. Peter gives a list, and it's not a list of really bad things not to do. No, it's a call to be a kind of person, to grow in virtues, to a call to make every effort to be like Jesus. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control. And to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. What is the divine nature? There it is. It's imitating Jesus, building virtues. Peter uses the language of a tower, one block building on top of another, faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control. I don't think the point is each one of these is a milestone. Once you've achieved goodness, well, you can tick that box and then you start working on knowledge. No, this way of speaking of building a tower of virtues, growing in Christ, it's saying that's something we keep building on, something we keep growing on. Growing keep growing in self-control. We're never going to make it. We keep building, keep growing in knowledge, knowing about God, knowing the scriptures and biblical teaching, but most of all, knowing God himself. Saying to not give up on mutual affection, literally brotherly love, loving other Christians, loving one another as a church. There's probably something in the fact that this list starts with faith and ends with love. The Christian life always begins with faith, trusting in Jesus for forgiveness and new life. And the greatest of these is love, loving not only family and friends, but even loving strangers and enemies. But the point of this this tower being built is that Christians are called to grow in all of these virtues, self-control, goodness, knowledge. We never stop. We must never get lazy and start coasting. We keep growing, building, making every effort. Grace is opposed to works, but not to effort. Why do we make every effort? We're given two reasons. Positively, it's because this is how knowing Jesus is effective and productive. And negatively, if we don't, we're blind and forgetful. Verse 8, for if you possess these qualities, these virtues, in increasing measure, They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. The word translated unproductive is literally unfruitful. It's like our mango tree this year. Last year, hundreds and hundreds of mangoes. This year, no fruit, not even a flower. Ineffective, unfruitful. Jesus has a vision for his people. It's not just, hey, get forgiven, get cleansed from sins and then just coast. Jesus calls us to be fruitful and effective, to live wholeheartedly for him this year, next year and every year, not coasting back into sin. Jesus didn't save us to be like a toddler who has a bath all clean and then runs back outside into the mud. No, you've been cleansed, so stay clean. Sometimes we shrink the impact of the gospel. We make the good news of Jesus to be something like Jesus died for your sins. Faith in him is your get out of jail, get out of hell card. That's it. Now there's truth in that. Jesus died the death we deserve to die. He did this so believers won't face God's wrath and punishment. That is true, but it is, it's a small truth. The bigger story is that Jesus died and rose again. He is the king of the world and he died so that he would free us from sin and welcome us into his kingdom. Through dying in our place, taking the punishment we deserve, Jesus has cleansed his people from their sin. Sin and guilt has been washed away. Not only the punishment that our sin deserves, but its power over us as well. He died so we might escape the corruption of the world. It's not merely get out of hell. It's also get into the eternal kingdom. Our life has been transformed from the world to the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Why believers to make every effort to grow more like Jesus, adding perseverance to self-control? Why are we to confirm our calling and election? Which doesn't mean keeping our salvation, that's all of grace. It's about knowing ourselves that we are chosen and saved by God. How are we to confirm our calling and election? It's by knowing the hope of the gospel, the vision of the Christian life. It's not just coasting through life. Yes, once upon a time I said a prayer and even cried when I did it. It's not just not going to hell. Our goal is to be richly welcomed in the eternal kingdom of Jesus. What's the eternal kingdom? It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's where Jesus is king. A kingdom where his values and virtues are put into practice. And if that's your eternal destiny, then live for this future now. If Jesus has died to rescue you and to be your king, live that future now. And this isn't going to be easy. We can't coast through the Christian life. Why can't we? Well, because we still live in a world that is corrupt. Because sinful desires are still at war within us. Although through faith we are already in his kingdom, we are still awaiting that final rich welcome. And so Jesus calls us to make every effort to grow. 
It's interesting. Peter doesn't tell us any special tricks on how to grow in these virtues. He doesn't say, look, here are the three steps, and if you follow these three steps, you'll automatically get self-control. Done. I think partly he does this because these things are never mastered. There's not just those three steps. Because if you think you could master any of those virtues, guess what would happen? Well, then you reckon, well, I've got there. I'm at the top of the hill, and now it's just coast. And coasting only goes downhill. Another reason we're not given the three steps is I think the important part is actually the making every effort. He repeats that a couple of times, doesn't he, in this passage. It's about continuing to take small steps in the long journey of obedience, small steps in the right direction. We're at a time of year when things are at a different pace. We get confused about not only what year it is, but even what day it is. This is as good a time as any to reflect and think about the year that's gone, the life that we have been living for Jesus, and the year ahead. Have a look at then those verses 5 to 7. Which of these virtues have you been coasting on? Now, do you look at this list and realize, yeah, I failed. Do you need to repent and receive God's forgiveness? What are the bad habits, the vices you've allowed to grow in the place of these virtues? Has self-control been taken over by doom-scrolling on your phone, by binging on streaming TV? Have you given up on people rather than persevering, sticking at it? Have you become stingy and greedy rather than generous like God? How can you commit to starting this year fresh, making every effort to grow in godliness? Maybe there's a trusted friend here at church you could ask to help keep you accountable. Maybe it's about starting a good habit of reading the Bible. I mentioned that in the email I sent out this week and I've printed off. I saw it. It's great. I've already seen a bunch of people take the, the Bible reading plan that I'm going to be using this year. You can keep me accountable on that. I'll do the same for you if you ask. Uh, Maybe it's joining a Bible study group when they start later this month because they're a context where we spur each other on to grow. God's grace is not opposed to our effort. Yes, we cannot earn salvation. We can't work into God's kingdom. But we are called that those who are in God's kingdom to make every effort to grow, to participate in the divine nature, to grow more like Jesus And we do this because of God's promises and power. The same promises and power Christ gave his apostles. We receive these same promises and power through the same faith. Brothers and sisters, we have not been called to coast. We've been called to be a church, making every effort to grow in God's grace. So let's pray God would be doing that in us. Please join with me. Powerful and loving God, we praise you for what you've done in Jesus, that in Jesus you have kept all your promises, that you've poured out your mercy and grace and given faith to believe in Jesus and to escape the corruption of the world. Please be at work in us. Thank you that in Jesus we can participate in the divine nature, that we can be like Christ. May you be growing us, 
strengthening us to make every effort that we may grow in faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection and love. May we not be a church that is ineffective and unfruitful, but one where we are growing deeply as disciples of Jesus, in whose mighty name we pray. Amen.